Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. One in four. That's the number of women in the U.S. who will have an abortion by the age of 45. 1973. That's the year of Roe v. Wade, when the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that the U.S. Constitution protects a woman's liberty to choose to have an abortion. 250. More than 250 bills restricting access to abortion care have been introduced in 41 states since the beginning of 2019. We're at a time in our country where anti-abortion measures are sweeping the United States. And although a new study shows that no more than a quarter of residents in any state support a total ban on abortions, our right to choose is at stake. Throughout this episode, you'll hear from women who share why they decided to have an abortion, including me. You will hear from men who understand a woman's reason to have an abortion is not any of their business or the government's. You'll also hear throughout the episode a brilliant spoken word piece done by the amazing David Bianchi. You will learn what's at risk, the dangers of these restrictive bills, the misconceptions, and why, at the end of the day, women just need to have the right to choose what they do with their bodies. I'm Alyssa Milano, and I've had an abortion. I control my own body. Sorry, not sorry. Roe versus Wade, decision of 1973, established a right of privacy that only a woman can testify what is right for her body in the early trimesters of pregnancy. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority in cases from Texas and Georgia said that the decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. Today we find it the center of a gathering storm as women and men argue the question of abortion, the right to life, or the woman's right to choose. Do you want the court, including the justices that you will name, do you want to see the court overturn Roe v. Well, if we put another two or perhaps three justices on, that's really what's going to be, that will happen, because I am putting pro-life justices on the court. A growing number of states are beginning to pass laws that would immediately ban abortion if Roe v. Wade is overturned. This is the death of progress. This is morality regress. As a man, I have no position to tell a potential mother what is best, nor should any conservative lawmaker sitting behind a desk. Georgia today joined a growing number of states. Alabama's Republican governor, Kay Ivey, signed into law the most restrictive abortion The Ohio governor signing today the most restrictive abortion law in the country. The most restrictive abortion law. Most restrictive abortion. Most restrictive anti-abortion laws in the country. The most restrictive abortion legislation in decades. The boycotts are growing louder from lawmakers to A-list celebrities. I don't know how we got here, both as a state and a nation but it's both embarrassing and a little bit terrifying. They're trying to go on a path that will totally dismantle Roe v. Wade, and we have to be vigilant and express our, our concerns on this. 
40 plus years ago, this became law and decriminalized abortion. And this is what we saw. A spike in activity as a result of the new freedom, 30 women per 1,000, but evolution is a continuum. 11 per 1,000 women, the CDC reports last year. Only 11. A dramatic drop in 46 years. So the evidence is clear. The use of contraception, delayed sexual activity is declining the procedure every single year. The progressives see it, but the conservatives are blind and deaf in both ears. They say abortion is an abomination and witness, but Republican congressmen, it's okay for your mistress? My name is Amanda Palmer. I'm a musician and a writer. The abortion that I had when I was 17 was, as abortions go, actually pretty okay. I had had a birth control slip up with my boyfriend. We had been together for a couple of years. We were deeply in love. It was very hard for both of us. And I was afraid to tell my mother, but I did. And my mother and my boyfriend took me to Planned Parenthood um, right outside Boston where I grew up. And looking back, the hardest part of that whole day wasn't the procedure. It was actually the walk from the car to the clinic where I had, had to, you know, with my boyfriend and with my mother, walk the gauntlet of angry, rageful, judgmental protesters who were all, you know, yelling at me and showing me these signs of bloody fetuses. That was the hardest part of the day. That was physically the most painful part of the day. And, you know, I was 17 and it was the early 90s. So even though I was a young feminist and my parents weren't really judgmental about the decision and everyone right in my little circle supported me, I didn't tell anybody. And I wasn't expected to tell anybody. This was just something that you did. And then the next day I was back at school in French class just swallowing and compartmentalizing this experience with no way to process what it meant, to process the grief, to process the weirdness. So fast forward, you know, a decade and a half. And in my early 30s, I had an abortion after I got married. And I was pregnant very much by accident and had taken an antibiotic, which when I went in to get the antibiotic, because I had a, a urinary tract infection, the nurse asked, is there any chance you're pregnant? I said, there's no chance. And then I found out, whatever, a week or two later that I was pregnant. And those words horrified and echoed immediately. I called our family doctor and I said, I'm, I'm pregnant, but I took this antibiotic. What do I do? He said, what's the name? Um, he, you know, he, he knew what was going on and he just had to tell me over the phone, I'm so sorry, Amanda, this one's not going to happen. You're going to have to terminate this pregnancy. And Neil and I, at the time, my husband, we, we were in Edinburgh and I was lucky. We had a friend who had a friend who was a gynecologist. I took an abortion pill, which by the way, Everyone has had different experiences, but I had a really harrowing experience taking the abortion pill and the surgical abortions that I've had were physically a lot easier to handle, just to buy the by. And, and now I'm in my early 30s, right? I'm married. I'm a grown up. I have agency. I'm not 17 and in high school anymore. And I was at the Edinburgh Fringe surrounded by all of these artists. And as an experiment, instead of just swallowing it and hiding 
this experience, I decided to start telling people. So I would be in a dressing room or in a bar and someone would say, Hey, Amanda, how are you doing? And I just thought, I'm going to tell you, like, I'm, I'm really shitty. I had an abortion on Tuesday and it was always really scary. That moment of, Oh my God, am I burdening this person with my abortion experience? But every single time I told someone I would just see this relief come over their face because they all had a story. This person had just had an abortion herself. This guy told me his story about, you know, his girlfriend getting pregnant last year at the Edinburgh Festival and how they had to go through his whole run of shows dealing with her in the hospital because she had complications. This person had just taken her cousin to an abortion. This person had one five years ago and hadn't talked about it. Everybody had a story. Everybody. And I just looked around and thought, wow, are we just not talking about this? And I guess the statistics tell us that we aren't. If one in four women isn't having an abortion, it's true. Someone's going to know someone. Someone's going to be in that experience right now. What I like to talk about is my personal experience with abortion. Because as everyone knows, and I'm very open about it, I'm a three-time rape survivor. And one of the times I was raped, there was conception. And I'm very thankful I was able to access safe and legal abortion because that rapist, who is a Kentuckian, as am I, and I reside in Tennessee, has paternity rights in Kentucky and Tennessee. I would have had to co-parent with a rapist. And so having safe access to abortion was personally important to me. And as I said earlier, you know, democracy starts with our skin. We're not supposed to regulate what we choose to do with our insides. And I'm very encouraged by seeing lots of other states who are coming forward and saying we're pro-choice, we're pro-woman, come do business with us, and I would be happy to. So maybe abortion rights aren't the problem. Maybe they're the solution. Maybe they're the answer to a poisonous underlying condition that there is a need for humane facilities where women can protect themselves and make the right decision. To succeed in life, all we need are the tools, the trust, and the chance to chart our own path. I was fortunate enough to have these things when I found out I was pregnant years ago. I wanted a family, but it was the wrong time. I made the decision that was best for me to have an abortion and get compassionate care at a clinic in my own community. Now, years later, my husband and I are parents to two incredible children. You see, it's not as simple as bad girls get abortions and good girls have families. We are the same women at different times in our lives, each making decisions that are best for us. That was Elise Hogue, president of NARAL Pro-Choice America. She shared her own abortion story on stage at the Democratic National Convention back in 2016. Elise and I sat down to talk about the importance of access to legal abortions, what's at stake, and so much more. This is much more than an issue of choice, but also it can be an issue of financial and economic structure. We believe that um, access to abortion is both a substantive issue in that when women need to terminate a pregnancy, they have to have access to safe and legal facilities and procedures that will allow them to do that because the consequences of not having them are disastrous. But at the same time, we also recognize that 
Um, striving for gender equity requires, in fact, self-determination and the autonomy, which starts with <laughs> trusting women to know what they can handle in their lives, that women who cannot actually control when and how and with whom they have families are um, face much greater obstacles when it comes to completing education, getting jobs, maintaining jobs, all the way through staying with abusive partners and um, can suffer economically, which has dramatic consequences on the families they already have. I always find it's useful to remind people that the majority of women seeking to terminate pregnancies are already mothers trying to take care of the families that they have. so many women, so many women, especially mothers, who get pregnant, change their minds, don't know if they can handle a fourth or a fifth child, don't know if they can do it right now, don't know if they have the support, don't know if their partner, you know, is going to stick with them because their relationship situation just changed, you know, just got another health diagnosis, don't know if they can handle a pregnancy. There's so many stories Every single one is unique. And every decision, every choice has to be defended. On this spectrum of, you know, you're, you, you are 13 and there is rape and there is incest and it's so, so defensible up to you are in your 40s and you already have a couple of kids and you just don't know if you can handle another. Every choice, every choice is defensible. That's why it is pro-choice. And that's why women have to fight for every single unique situation that every other single unique woman is in. Because all of our situations are unique and all of us have to have total autonomy over our lives and our narratives. Why do all the men get to choose what a woman has to go through? Why do... All the men have to make a law about a woman's body. I don't understand it. This is Ben Jackson. It is so important for men to support a woman's right to have a safe and legal abortion for so many reasons. First of all, obviously, we can't experience what it's like to be pregnant. We'll never know. So how can we make an informed decision as to what happens in someone else's body and what the right thing is for them to do. We simply can't do it. But more importantly than that, we as men have created the mess that we own the societal and political power here in America. As such, we're responsible to women. We have to listen to them. And 75% of women tell us they want this right, that this right belongs to them. It is our duty to listen to those we have accepted the responsibility of representation for. And until we fix that problem, we don't get a vote other than to represent them. It is our duty. just an attack on women. It's an attack on everything that we know. It's counter-progress, civil liberties, and a constitutional blow. It's the fear of what's next. Indifference of every preceding social fight where a state official will flex their muscle to tell a woman what they think is right. It's a shame to see old white patriarchal men go through with this with the gall and the audacity to tell a woman what to do with her uterus. Vote them out! Vote them out! My name 
is Busy Phillips. I had an abortion when I was 15 years old in my home state of Arizona in 1994. It was not a decision that I made lightly, but I have never for one moment doubted that it was the right decision for me. But so much has changed in Arizona and many other states since then. If I were that same 15-year-old in Arizona today legally, I would have to get parental consent. I would be forced to undergo a medically unnecessary ultrasound, go to a state-mandated in-person counseling session designed solely to shame me into changing my mind, and then take a state-mandated 24-hour time out to make sure I really know what I wanted. And finally... I would be forced to give the state a reason why. Well, here is mine. It is my body, not the state's. Women and their doctors are the ones that are in the best position to make informed decisions about what is best for them. No one else. No bill that criminalizes abortion will stop anyone from making this incredibly painful decision. These bans will not stop abortion from happening, but they will drive women and girls and people into the shadows, which is what this has always been about, shaming and controlling women's bodies. In the week after I shared my story on my show, women were coming up to me in the street, in the supermarket, at my gym, with tears in their eyes, thanking me for my bravery. But the word brave didn't sit right with me. Why is it brave to speak to an experience that millions of people around the world throughout history have gone through? And then I realized it is considered brave because as women, we have been taught to feel shame about our bodies since birth. In my life, I've had many medical procedures, but no one has ever called me brave for talking about them. Abortion is healthcare and should not be treated as different from any other healthcare. I am so sad that we have to sit here in front of a row of politicians and give deeply personal statements because the why doesn't matter. It should not matter. I am a human being that deserves autonomy in this country that calls itself free and choices that a human being makes about their own bodies should not be legislated by strangers who can't possibly know or understand each individual circumstances or beliefs. Did you and Nayral see these abortion reversal bills coming? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we sought to um, <laughs> we sought to create interventions that would prevent us from getting to the place that we were. But at the same time, it was our responsibility to plan for every scenario. And well, I think to um, someone who hasn't been tracking for a long time, like we do on a daily basis, it could feel like a surprise what's happened over the last year. But I'm from Texas, and I will tell you, um, you know, under previous administrations, the state government in Texas had been um, drive testing a lot of these kinds of restrictions for a very long time. They have just disproportionately affected poor women, rural women, women of color. And so, um, you know, a lot of people were blind to the impact. But we also knew that um, there was a very real and very transactional relationship between the anti- choice establishment, which has massive power, massive money, and massive 
um, influence on the GOP and Donald Trump, who, let's be clear, was not their first choice. But when he was the last man standing, they made a deal with him. And he has lived up to that deal. And so we knew that the election of Donald Trump was setting into motion a series of events that really went into hyperdrive um, when you and I kind of became friends, which was during the Kavanaugh battle. Um, NARAL, in fact, had worked very hard to oppose Justice Gorsuch because we took Donald Trump at his word and we knew he had committed to only appointing justices that were committed to overturning Roe v. Wade. And then, of course, when Justice Kennedy retired and Brett Kavanaugh um, was nominated to take his place, that was the tipping point for the anti-choice movement. Now they feel like they have a lot of state legislators, a friendly court, and an administration that's not going to, not only not going to stop them, but in fact is going to help them achieve their goals. And therefore, this was a moment they had been building towards for 40 years. So do you think that we're seeing so many abortion reversal bills on a state level because this is leading up to overturning Roe v. Wade? That's certainly their goal. And I would put an even finer point on it. Um, you know, the sort of conventional wisdom about overturning Roe is that they just want to send it back to the states. And that means women, as we know, who have been suffering under draconian regulations, like in my home state of Texas, or now in Alabama, or Georgia, would have one kind of existence where women in New York or women in Washington State or California would have a different kind of existence. And that may be true for a little while. But unchecked, the anti-choice movement has a much bigger, much more sinister agenda, which is to create a federal criminalization law on abortion um, and that would be upheld by this court. So I really tell people all the time, don't feel safe if you don't live in one of these red states because they're coming for you one way or the other. What we know in this country from pre-row days and what we know from around the world is that every place where women lack access to safe and legal abortion, the number of abortions don't go down. The number of deaths and injuries just go up. Gloria Allred is one of the top women's rights attorneys. She and her partners have handled more women's rights cases than any other private firm in the nation. She shared her abortion story in her memoir, Fight Back and Win. And I think it's so important for you to hear. And next week on Sorry Not Sorry, I sit down with Gloria to talk about her career and her dedicated fight for women. In 1966, I had a life-changing experience that would ultimately solidify my decision to become a lawyer and fight for women's rights. I was raped at gunpoint. I was on vacation in Acapulco when I met a local physician. He invited me out to dinner, but said he had to make some house calls first. The last stop was a motel, where he said he had to see a sick patient. We went to the room, but when we entered, no one was there. He pulled a gun and raped me. I didn't tell the authorities at the time because I didn't think they'd believe an American girl against a well-known and respected Mexican doctor. After I got home from Mexico, I discovered I was pregnant. I was divorced and a single parent. I believed that an abortion was necessary for me to be able to survive and build a future for my daughter. I could barely support her, let alone another child as well. But this was in the days before Roe v. Wade, when it was illegal in many states for a doctor to perform abortions. In 1966, 
Section 274 of the California Penal Code read, Every person who provides, supplies, or administers to any woman or procures any woman to take any medicine, drug, or substance, or uses or employs any instrument or other means whatever with intent thereby to procure miscarriage of such woman, unless the same is necessary to preserve her life, is punishable by imprisonment in the state prison, not less than two, nor more than five years. I was forced to undergo a back alley abortion. The man I found told me very little, except to show up for the appointment alone. Afterward, I began to hemorrhage heavily. I called the man who performed the abortion, but all he told me was, we did what you paid for and we're not responsible for what happens to you afterward. I was afraid to seek medical aid because I knew abortion was against the law. I developed a fever of 106 degrees from the infection that resulted. I almost bled to death. Finally, like other young women in my situation, I was taken to the hospital to a special ward where women who were dying from abortions were treated. I was packed in ice, placed in intensive care, and given antibiotics and an IV. Fortunately, I lived. Others in my situation did not. I remember one nurse coming around to me and saying, this will teach you a lesson. No woman wants an illegal abortion as part of her life history. However, because of that experience, I am committed to assuring that abortion is safe, legal, and available. I don't want anyone else to have to suffer what I had to endure, not knowing whether I would live or die from an unsafe and illegal abortion. If you're pro-life or pro-choice, that's truly your opinion. As Americans in a free nation, our women should have the option to make their own decisions. And there are thousands of women today that have to make the ultimate dark decision. It wasn't too long ago that it was a hanger in the kitchen. I'm an RN, and I am an old RN, and I can remember when women used to have illegal abortions come to the hospital. I never want to see that ever again. I want a woman to have the right to get a safe, legal abortion. I am a woman who had an abortion with my first and only pregnancy at the age of 35. What happened to me is kind of an interesting story because I don't think it often happens to many women, but it's a side of abortion that needs a face and a voice. At 34 years old, I was diagnosed with a DVT and multiple pulmonary embolisms. I was hospitalized for a week and put on multiple blood thinners. When I was released from the hospital, I was on warfarin, otherwise known as Coumadin, and at a very high dose for my blood clotting situation. My boyfriend and I at the time were not using any other form of birth control. I did not believe I would get pregnant at that age. So that was October. In February, only a few short months later, and I had just turned 35, I found out that I was indeed pregnant. When I went to the doctors, 
for my ultrasound, they warned me, um, simply because of being on such high doses of Coumadin, that I was a very high-risk pregnancy, and that essentially I was poisoning my child. My child was given a 20% chance of having something abnormal wrong with it, so my boyfriend and I made the educated decision to abort. At the end of February, I believe it was February 28th, we had the abortion. I was about nine to 10 weeks pregnant. While it was a very difficult decision, doctors said at the time they would prefer to save a woman's life rather than lose a woman's life as well as lose the baby's life. Planned Parenthood saved my life. I was out of a job. I had no health care. Planned Parenthood really did a good job by being supportive and my only source of comfort during that time. So I'm a woman that, yes, is one in four, but I was a woman that had a severe medical condition and was advised to abort my child because of that condition. When we think of abortion, we oftentimes do not think about women that have medical conditions and that could quite possibly lose their lives if they continue with their pregnancy. I would wish that no woman would have to have an abortion, but at the same time, it's my body and my choice. For decades, there has been um, chilling misinformation, some of which state legislators have forced doctors who absolutely say this is medically inaccurate to repeat to their patients from abortion causes breast cancer, you'll never be able to get pregnant again. Abortion can be reversed, um, which is medically completely um, unsound. Um, but I think, you know, the one of the more sinister falsehoods that gets pushed by um, the anti-choice movement, I think, is that um, women are incapable without state intervention of determining what's best for us. And that manifests in all sorts of what I call shaming laws. The shaming laws include sort of waiting periods, mandatory timeouts, which are not only designed to sort of humiliate us and put us in our place as though we can't think carefully for ourselves without the government ordering us to do, but um, also places immensely higher economic and logistical burdens on women seeking abortion, because in some cases, those waiting periods are as long as five days. So imagine you live in a big state where you've had to travel, you have to go for uh, your initial consultation, then you have to wait five days. So you're either paying for a hotel or you're paying for transportation both ways, and then you have to come back. So that's one example of a shaming law. Mandatory ultrasounds, which, you know, Missouri just sort of caught hell for reintroducing um a second one in the process. Um, again, no, no medical need for that at all. Only a way to embarrass and shame or attempt to embarrass and shame women. Um, and I think that those laws are a direct manifestation of a kind of cultural acceptance that we all know is rooted in, in deep misogyny, that women are incapable of of directing our own lives and having the freedom to make our own decisions. Abortion is freedom. It's a constitutional right. It's overwhelmingly supported by Americans. 
and the fact that we have a few people um, representing the minority making decisions that will affect many, many women's lives and productivity is just inconceivable, inappropriate, and infuriating. I've had an abortion due to rape. I didn't want to have the baby because I feared he would turn out or she would turn out like their father. And I didn't want to be carrying and raising a child that I did not want. And I was young at the time. And that was also an issue. And I don't mean young like college. I mean young like was in high school. And I didn't think it was fair that I would be you know, having to raise a child at that age that I did not want. So I did make the decision to have an abortion at the time. I also wasn't, you know, in a position where I could really raise a child and it wasn't fair to have my mother, uh, who was a single mother at the time, raise a child when it wasn't, you know, hers uh, to raise when she was already struggling to raise me at the time and my sister. And it wasn't an easy decision. It wasn't like, you know, something I jumped at. And I actually let that person know that I had, you know, become pregnant because this was somebody known to me, as we know that those who do become pregnant by rape it's usually somebody we do know, unfortunately. So I did let them know um, that that had happened. And the first thing that they had said, of course, was, you know, go get an abortion. <sighs> so it uh, was something that I don't regret doing after all these years. I don't feel like it was a decision that should have been made differently. I know that years you know, later, I would have been tied to my rapist with that child, and that's not something that I would have wanted. Women are raped by men on the daily. On average, 383, and those are the ones that are reported by women with sufficient bravery in the land of the free. So I ask you, how many of these result in pregnancy? Recent studies say 5% apparently, which means 19.15 babies are unwillfully created on the daily. So physical pain and emotional torment aside, you're telling me an innocent, unwanted woman has no choice but to keep the baby alive? and bring a child into this world born out of moral violation? How can moral code that is supposedly the backbone of counter-progress legislation force a woman to birth a child by rape or by incest into our American nation help me understand the sensible basis of this equation? So, on one hand, you tell me that rape is the ultimate wrong, but on the other, you tell me that if a child is conceived out of rape, aborting that child is against the law and punishable to a higher degree than the rapist that created it all? My abortion story is pretty unremarkable and extremely common. I had just turned 24 when I found out, uh, much to my surprise, that I was pregnant. My partner at the time and I had practiced safe sex, and there I was, 
staring at a positive pregnancy test. And I knew immediately that I was not ready for the responsibilities of motherhood. And even though I wanted children someday, that was not the time. So I was able to get an abortion rather quickly. Um, The state where I live has some pretty progressive and accessible abortion laws. And it was an easy decision for me and something that, you know, many years later, I do not regret in the least bit. Honestly, the most difficult part of the experience, and when I say most difficult, I mean the only difficult part for me, wasn't making the decision, wasn't the procedure. It was battling through a group of anti-choice protesters who were screaming at me as I walked into the clinic that I shouldn't be killing my baby. Um, I am a healthcare provider, and I work with poor women, and I know what a termination of a pregnancy means, and I hate the word abortion because it's a right every woman should have to terminate a pregnancy. I was 16 years old and got pregnant by a 28-year-old alcoholic drug dealer living in a teeny little town in the middle of nowhere. Um, He borrowed the money for the abortion from my mother and, of course, never paid her back. Uh, While I was having my abortion, he was sitting in a bar getting drunk, then picked me up and took me home. And there's a lot of reasons I'm not sorry I had that abortion, but I don't think I need to do any apologizing or explain why I'm not sorry. I didn't want a baby, and I had an abortion, and it was my right to have one. My understanding of scriptures say that women are moral decisors. Women have the ability to make decisions for themselves, and these kinds of of threats are threatening that fundamental quality and putting lives at danger. Writing about abortion is so hard. It's so hard to get it right. It's so hard to strike the right tone. It's so hard to make a piece of art that isn't too sentimental or too judgmental or too political or too righteous or whatever. And it was only after being at the referendum vote in Ireland watching all of these women having fought this really long, hard battle for freedom and autonomy and then just watching the relief on all of these women's faces as their government actually stopped treating them like second-class citizens and so many people in Ireland just stood up for their rights. And, you know, I didn't know really how I felt about America until I was over in Ireland hanging out with these women looking at me saying, Amanda, you think you understand, but you don't. We've been second-class citizens in our own country for so long. Women have been dying, and now we are free. Eight states this year alone push abortion bans that were somewhere around eight weeks or earlier, which is just extraordinarily early in pregnancy. We have other states that in previous legislative uh, sessions had put 20-week bans into effect. Again, 
in Texas that happened in 2014. And it was sort of the fight that made Wendy Davis famous when she did her uh, many hour filibuster to stop that law from passing. Um, You know, the danger of normalization is now people are like, whoa, 20 weeks sounds generous compared to what we're facing now. Exactly. But But that's exactly their strategy. Right. That's exactly their strategy to make the unreasonable sound reasonable by being so extreme. And so, you know, if you break it down, um, there are a number of states with uh, six week abortion bans, um, Kentucky, Mississippi, Ohio, um, Georgia. And then, of course, Alabama um, passed a two-week abortion ban, which is even silly to say because you and I know as mothers, like, you most often have no idea you're pregnant. Even at six weeks, much of two weeks is is insane. Even if you're taking your um, test every single day, you may not know by two weeks. And then, you know, my home state of Texas, I can't say it enough, um, went so far as to introduce a bill this session that got a hearing that would mandate capital punishment for women seeking abortions. And again, while it didn't get a vote, it got a hearing. Um, I caution people as suggesting that that is an outlier because that is part of the process of normalization. And the anti-choice movement is getting more bold in saying this, they believe this is murder. Women should be treated as murderers and the court should see it the same. And absent a very unified, very full-throated response, um, we're not going to like where we end up. This is a death of progress. This is morality regress. As a man, I have no position to tell a potential mother what is best. Nor should any conservative lawmaker sitting behind a desk. Looking at where we are right now, uh, what can people do at home to fight these abortion reversal bills? Um, So people can do quite a bit to make sure that this um, current wave of laws does not become our national destiny. And I think the most important thing for your listeners to understand is no action is too small. So one of the things that I talk about, first and foremost, just have these conversations with your friends, your neighbors. It's almost like we're facing an issue that has had so much stigma around it for so long that the silence is creating the conditions for an extreme agenda to become law that nobody really wants or so few people really want. Um, And so let's just start talking. And your podcast is doing that. And we're so grateful for it. Beyond that, there is opportunity. NARAL ourselves runs a 50-state reality of Roe campaign. One of the crucial things to understand is that if Roe, if when Roe falls, every state already has laws on the books, and most people don't even know what their status would be in the state that they live in. So get educated. Third, Get involved in legislative, um, state legislative battles in your own state. A lot of people think, I live in a blue state. I don't have to worry. Not true. The blue states right now are creating islands of access that are going to be absolutely necessary if Roe falls. And we have actually won six out of seven of our bills this year to make sure that states have decriminalized abortion and codified Roe at the state level, which is a huge success due to so many people getting involved. And if you're in a red state, 
you got to be present to fight these reactive, um, unjust laws. Because if we go quietly without a fight, imagine what comes next. That Texas hearing on execution could be next. If you're in a blue state, you can also help support people in red states, but don't do it at the expense of engaging in your own state legislative process, which is crucially important. And then finally, ask these questions of people seeking to represent you politically in your state houses and at the federal government level. A lot of the reason that the Republican Party, which has not at all always been anti-choice, has drifted so extreme on this is because there is a silent majority, even within their own ranks, who have not made this an issue, have not asked the hard questions of their elected officials. And if you are a tried and true Democrat, Ask the questions of your elected officials because Democrats need to understand this is a priority. We've got to move forward with a what I call a transpartisan consensus that these issues are ones of fundamental freedom and um, human rights. And that's only going to come from asking the hard questions of your elected officials and supporting the ones whose values match your own. I can't believe we live in a time and a place where those in power would make the stories we just heard even harder, more dangerous, and more bone-crushing for the women who told them than they already are. And yet, we do. Legal safe access to abortion throughout much of the United States is about to look much like it does in Syria. The same people who scream about a non-existent problem of Sharia law in America are taking away women's rights to have their own bodies. The same people who shout about the alleged virtues of small government in America are making government so big that it fills our wombs. The same people who are all for taking away access to basic health care coverage for children are demanding fetuses have protections that no human in America receives. It is terrifying, and it took courage for the women who shared their stories to tell them today, when it is becoming more and more dangerous to be a woman in America. And I cannot ask these brave souls to tell their truths without telling mine. So here it goes. In 1993, I had two abortions. I was in love for the first time in the breathless way you can only be in love when you are young. It was huge, overwhelming even. It filled every part of living, and it was a joyful and exciting and powerful time in my life. I was on the pill, taking birth control, because I knew I was not ready to be a parent. I had finished working on Who's the Boss, and I was starting to work on films and other projects, and my career and my life were in front of me, and I was living them as fully as I could. And also, at that time... I was taking a drug called Accutane. Accutane is an acne medicine that is so likely to cause birth defects if taken by a pregnant woman that the FDA now requires doctors, pharmacies, and women to sign up to a registry before prescribing, dispensing, or receiving it. I knew this, and so using birth control was a doubly important decision for me. 
and I still got pregnant. It was devastating. I was raised Catholic and was suddenly put in conflict with my faith, a faith I was coming to realize empowered only men to make every single decision about what was allowed and what was not allowed. I had a career and a future and and potential. And also I suffered from sometimes crippling anxiety. So I knew, I knew at that time I was not equipped to be a mother. And so I chose to have an abortion. I chose. It was my choice. And it was absolutely the right choice for me. It was not an easy choice. It was not something I wanted, but it was something that I needed. Like most healthcare is. I refuse to allow anyone else's bullshit morality to force me into a life of premarital celibacy. I refuse to live in the narrative that sexual pleasure is for men and that women exist to deliver that pleasure. My body gives me pleasure. Sexually connecting with my partner gave me pleasure. Nobody will try and say that he was at fault for enjoying sex with me, but you could be damn sure that the men enacting these laws think less of me for deriving the same pleasure from him. And so I continued to enjoy a sexual relationship with the man I loved. They tell you the pill is 99% effective at preventing pregnancies, and yet a few months later, I found out I was pregnant again. So I had done what I knew to do to prevent pregnancy and was still pregnant. So once again, I made the right decision to end that pregnancy. The assault against women's bodies over the last few years has forced me to reflect on what I would have lost if I never had my abortions. I would not have my children, my beautiful, perfect, loving, kind, and inquisitive children who have a mother who was so very, very ready for them. I would not have my career. I would not have the ability or platform I use to fight against oppression with all my heart. I would never have met my amazing husband, David, whose steadfast and immeasurable love for me sustains me through these terrifying times, 15 years after that first love had fizzled. My life would be completely lacking all its great joys. I would never have been free to be myself. And that's what this fight is about. Freedom. Freedom from oppression Freedom for women to have the audacity to be equally sexual beings as men. Freedom for women to live the life they were meant to have, not just the life that is thrust upon them by a pregnancy that cannot exist in their life. My reasons for having an abortion are real. They surround me every day. The reasons of all the women who have had abortions are real. They are ours, and they are none of your fucking business. We told these none-of-your-business stories not because we wanted to 
We told them because our voice is just about the only thing that male-dominated government is leaving women. For now. I, for one, will never stop using my voice. Sorry. Not sorry. She was poor. She was just 13. She was 12 a month ago. She was living in Alabama. She was living in Ohio. She was living in Georgia. She didn't have anywhere to go. She was young. She didn't know the rules. She didn't think she could say no. Thought it was love and it'd be forever in a locker room after school. She couldn't tell anybody, couldn't tell her mom or dad. She didn't know what she should do. All she knew was that it was bad.
Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Sim Sarna and Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnik. It's edited by Josh Windish. Our production associate is Daniela Silva. Music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry Not Sorry. Sorry Not Sorry.